Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for another opportunity to gather this day, just a week removed from our Easter celebrations, as we uh, continue to uh, think, hopefully every week and every day, about uh, applying you into our life and living with you and what it means to actually uh, do what you've told us to do. You've said over and over that if now that we know certain things, that we will be blessed if we actually do them. So help us to consider this day, yet again, perhaps in a fresh way, who you are and who you have claimed yourself to be, so that we can walk in greater understanding of who you are, of who we are with you, and what life is like because of you. We pray that uh, you would open our hearts and dig out our ears, tenderize our hearts in this moment, so that we can be your faithful followers. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. There was uh, once four siblings who were forced to leave their home and go to a a strange and unknown place to them out in the country. And as uh, they began to uh, explore that this new place for them. They had several adventures along the way and began to, uh, of course, follow their childlike curiosities of uh, exploration, and they would uh, play uh, make-believe games and uh, all sorts of things. Um, The two oldest siblings, however, became a little concerned with their youngest sister because after a while she began to talk about how she could walk into this particular coat closet And more than finding coats there, she actually found a portal to a whole new world through this wardrobe. And out of this deep concern for their sister, they didn't know what to do. Because she was so insistent that this was no longer make-believe, that this was actually real. And to the older brother and sister, they thought, wow, she has taken make-believe life and she's melded it into uh, somehow now proclaiming that it is real. And they didn't know quite what to do with her. Uh, She had claimed to be in this other world, Narnia, we know it, from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And she had claimed to have gone there with uh, her uh, brother who was just one year older than her, uh, Edmund. And Edmund denied that they together had gone to that place. And so, uh, not knowing what to do, fearing for their sister, concerned for her, they go to the owner of the house and uh, the professor, Professor Diggory, and they begin to ask him what he thinks. After all, as an adult, he would have greater perspective. As a wise professor, he certainly would have knowledge and insight into uh, this concerning matter. And his question back to them is simply, well, why isn't what she says, why could not it be true? Well, they were startled by that response. Certainly an adult shouldn't think such things. And he begins to talk to them about logic. And he begins to ask them, well, if Edmund is saying one thing and Lucy is saying something else, who do you have a history with that you tend to trust to be the one to tell the truth more often than not? And they said, well, that's the strange matter of it. We, we know that Lucy is the one who more often tells the truth, and it's Edmund that we have uh, concerns about with his character and his ability and his loose relationship with the truth. And he says, well, why not then trust the woman, the, the girl, the sister that you know? And they say, well, that's just the point. Because if what she is talking about certainly cannot be true, and so he says, oh, so you're concerned that she's a liar. And they say, well, 
that troubles us too. Well, if she's not a liar, then are you saying she's mad? And they're like, ah, we're not quite ready to go there either. And he says, well, then what could it be? Either she's lying or she's deranged in some way or she must be telling the truth. You decide. And so they begin to walk through the rest of the story. That's just in chapter 5 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've not read the book, I invite you to go and find it uh, and read it for yourself. Of course, this story is a fictional one, but the way that Lucy's siblings interact with her is similar in the way that many in our world wonder about how to respond to the claims that Jesus made about himself. Just who is Jesus? Many don't deny his the reality that he lived in the world. Uh, they, it's easy to see that he obviously left an impression in a faraway land at a time long, long ago. But what are we to make of him today? People might respond to Jesus in a variety of ways. They might simply hear about him and just disregard because there's no way the things that he did or the things the person he claimed to be, there's no way that that could actually be true or real. And so it's just a simple disregard. Other times people respond to him with an excited initial response that may over time have very little staying power. And yet another response could be one that is deep and life-altering and lifelong, even everlasting, by entering into a relationship with him. Today, we are beginning a series that will last us for several weeks to come. There's an insert in your bulletin describing uh, the weeks ahead as we examine some of the ways that Jesus himself talked about himself the ways that he described himself to the people of his day and things that we need to hear in a fresh way, I hope and pray, today and in the weeks to come. So just who is Jesus? As we pick up uh, the story in John chapter 8 today, you're welcome to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. Jesus has gone to the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the high holy uh, festivals in the Jewish calendar Throngs of people had uh, come to Jerusalem. They've ascended the mountain there, and they're there uh, uh, rejoicing and celebrating in this particular religious festival. And uh, for chapter 7 and all through chapter 8, Jesus has been engaged with uh, those protectors of the, the purity of Jewish thought. Uh, so they, they had taken upon themselves. We know them as the Pharisees. And these religious leaders and Jesus have been having this interesting back-and-forth conversation There now are beginning to be accusations thrown toward Jesus about who he is and uh, uh, they're dishonoring him in some, some really significant ways. But the religious leaders at this point are seeing with their own eyes what Jesus has been doing in his healing miracles. They are hearing the way that he teaches. They're watching the way that people will stand up and follow him. And they're becoming concerned with the way people are responding and following to him. And now they come to him and they ask him a very pointed question. And I, I don't know the tone of the question. I can read it in three or four different ways with some different tone. But I know the point of the question is that they are, they're just overwhelmed uh, with uh, incredulity about what Jesus would say. The question is, who do you think that you are, Jesus? And he answers in a very uh, Jewish response that, at least for a Jewish ear of the day, would be so significant for them. In 
verse 53 of chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. Here's where we pick up the conversation. The Pharisees are asking him, Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Verse 56. Your father Abraham, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. The Pharisees respond. They say, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Are you greater than Abraham and the prophets is the question. And Jesus answers in a variety of ways. He says, I know God the Father in a way that you do not. You who seek to know God simply by keeping the, the letter of the law and think that you have life through that, I know God the Father in a way and in a significance uh, that you do not and will not. He answers by saying, referring back to Abraham, of course, the, the great patriarch of uh, Judeo-Christian uh, reality and faith. He says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. Now let's remember a minute about who Abraham was. God had made it a promise with Abraham in the book of Genesis that one day through Abraham's family, God would send uh, a blessing to the whole world. That's why when you open up the gospel accounts in Matthew and Luke at the very beginning and the Christmas stories and accounts of Jesus, sometimes you may you may look through the genealogies and so-and-so uh, uh, begat so-and-so is the old way of saying it, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And boy, uh, before long you can start yawning if you miss the significance of what's trying to be communicated through that genealogy. Because through that, they're trying to connect the fact that Jesus uh, has a connection with Abraham, not just a connection, but that Jesus is the fulfillment of this great promise made to Abraham, through Abraham, so long ago. And so that is the reason the Christmas accounts connect Jesus to this great promise that was made to Abraham. Abraham, one day through your seed, the blessed one will come and the whole world will be blessed through you. We know later that Abraham's faith was credited to him by God as righteousness. But his faith was in the promise of God. Abraham didn't put faith in himself. God's promise was that one day he would send and come into the world uh, and send a special instrument of healing and hope. And of course, we know that to be Jesus. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day knew that they needed to be connected to Abraham. If they were to have any hope with God, they knew that they had to have this connection with Abraham. And so they looked for this biological and blood connection. 
They look for a connection of obedience to the law. And those are significant and not to be uh, dismissed. But it's not in that and that alone, Jesus would say, that their hope is to be built. Jesus says that it's not by family of origin that we have hope for our future life, but by adoption as sons and daughters. And that adoption comes through relating to the person of Jesus himself. So Jesus says in response to the question, who do you think you are? He says, I know God, the Father, in a way that you do not. And in fact, Abraham looked forward to my day and he rejoiced in the thought of my coming to this world. Their response to him in verse 57 is, you're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And this then is the crescendo of the argument, the way John is laying it out. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego eimi in the Greek, the same way that God announced himself when Moses stood in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. You might recall Moses stands there, God gives him this call to go back to the land that he had, he had fled because he's a fugitive from the law. And God is now calling Moses to go back to Egypt so that through Moses, God might deliver the people. And Moses says, well, you're telling me after all this time to go back? How are they going to trust that what I'm saying has any validity? Who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? And God in response says, I am who I am. So when Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 58, says, before Abraham was... Before he was born, I am. For a Jewish ear in that day, he is very clearly connecting himself to the same God at the burning bush. And he's making a claim that was so, for a, a non-believing Jewish ear of the day, was so ridiculously absurd. There was only one appropriate response. And you see the response in, chapter, in verse 59. At this... They picked up stones in order to execute him. This was a claim you just could not make without repercussions. It's a claim you dare not make. You might make it if you're mad. You might make it if you're lying. But what if it's actually true? What if Jesus really is God in the flesh? That's the reason that we celebrate and worship him. That's why when we gather on Sundays, we talk about Jesus consistently, regularly, and we center our worship in him and what he's done on the cross and the celebration of the rejoicing of his resurrection from the dead because he really is I am. He really is God come in the flesh. Of course, C.S. Lewis is the writer of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In his book, Mere Christianity, for a more, uh, perhaps, adult ear, he, he writes this further explanation of whether uh, we are to approach Jesus in the way Jesus claimed what he claimed about himself, whether he was lying or whether he was mad. But if he's telling the truth, how ought we to approach him? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however... However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Who do you think that you are? Are you greater, Jesus, than our father Abraham? Are you greater than the prophets of old who spoke on behalf of God, thus saith the Lord? They lived and they died. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Before Abraham was born, Jesus says, I am. So it comes to us, if you've never made a decision for the Lord Jesus about him, maybe today would be the start of a deeper journey of understanding his person. Maybe today's the day that you would want to confess your sin and accept him personally into your own life and to declare, you know what? There's no way I can just hold Jesus at a distance or set him up on a pedestal and say, wow, what great things he taught, what a great life he lived. But at the end of the day, it really has no impact upon my life. I'm not going to set him in a place of significance and centrality of my life. See, Jesus really hasn't left that as an option to us. If you want to deal and interact with the Jesus as he has presented himself, then these are three options. He's either mad or he lied about who he was, where he came from, and what his purpose was, or he's telling the truth. And because he's telling the truth, it demands a response, a response of faith, a response of obedience, and a response of confession to him today. This is the start of a series uh, through the I Am statements in the Gospel of John, looking at the ways Jesus described himself And we'll look at some of these uh, in more detail as we move forward together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. I thank you for this statement today. And as we uh, frame this series to come this morning, I pray, God, that uh, even those who may have understood you and being the Son of God, God in the flesh, Perhaps that was a belief and an understanding and an embrace of life so many years ago. My hope and prayer that in the weeks to come is that for us, this would be a refreshing time. It would be a renewing time, an opportunity to look afresh at those things that you said about yourself so that we can live the life you called us to live. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen.